Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Edge. Um, today, we have one of John's friends. We have Mr. Julio Perez here. It's great to have you. Um, for our listeners' benefits, give us a little bit of an intro about yourself, kind of how did you get into the industry, what have you been doing, and let's kind of take a path through your career for a while. Sure. I will, I'm going to start all the way from the beginning. But yeah, first of all, thank you for having me on. Thank you for inviting me on. That was just incredible. Uh, anytime I get to do a podcast, especially for the community, uh, and to possibly help the next individual coming up, uh, always willing to do that and always appreciative. So thank you very much. But my journey, let's see. Uh Let's start from the jump. So when I was a kid, <clears throat> I was always a tinker. And I think a lot of network engineers, they kind of had that mindset where we wanted to tinker. We wanted to build something. Maybe it's Legos. Maybe it's uh, something that's powered. Uh, for me, it was more of, I have a game system. How can I improve the internet or Wi-Fi speed to my game system or the signal to my game system, right? Making like a... a you know, an antenna to sort of try to send the waves. This is me as a kid, right? I'm like reading on the internet, like how to improve Wi-Fi, uh, trying to make an antenna and point it to my room because we didn't have a drop over there. Uh, just little things like that. And actually, initially, I wasn't in my, you know, teenage years and high school years, I wasn't even into uh, networking per se. It was more towards uh, drafting and design and sort of architecture. That was really the, where I thought my my life was going and my trajectory. And then sort of in, in high school times, you know, your parents kind of ask you, so what's what's the next step? Like, well, what are you going to do next? Are you going to do college? Are you going to do the military or you know, university? Uh, and kind of at the moment, I didn't I didn't really have a plan. Right. I, in, in my day, I just uh, just wasn't too sure. I think off the um, just off the top of my head, I just told my dad, oh, I'm thinking about military, maybe Air Force. And he says, oh, that sounds great. And he's kind of just, you know, trusted me in that. And. I think I sort of planted that seed in my own mind because it just kind of kept growing. I was like, man, what am I, what am I really going to do? Um, hmm. So I'm like, you know what? I did mention to my father, the military, I did say air force, but I'm going to check out every branch. So I checked out every branch. Naturally I researched and I landed on the air force and within the air force is like a recruitment page. And there is a role there that says cyber transport systems. And I was like, Whoa, this sounds incredible. And then the military, they, uh, they like to sort of uh, not battleify or, or, you know, they try to make their title sound very uh, action oriented. So even though I was essentially a network slash IT guy, um, it was cyber transport systems. But realistically, that's the what I would relate. It's almost like the closest relation to a network engineer in the military. Right. So we're moving packets from point A to B. Uh, so yeah, went into the recruiter, started the whole process. I was very fortunate to score a high. So when you're going into the military, you have to do what's called an ASVAB test. It's basically a, a test that judges what fields you would do good in. They do things like um, administrative roles or a mechanical based role. Maybe you're going to be a mechanic or or work on an on, you know the airline side or you know, the the flight line. Um, or what I did is I really wanted to score high in electrical. So that specific role that I wanted, you needed to get a fairly high electrical score. So I think I was ultra focused on studying those portions uh, of the ASVAB test. Lucky enough, I got a high score, went into basic training and got into that role, uh, which was amazing. Uh, from there, I did the, did the basic training, finished that, which was required by every service member. And then I went to my initial training or my uh, initial school, which was in Mississippi. So that was... 10 months of 
you know, what is the electricity? How does it work? Like, what is a circuit? Uh, how to wire things, uh, networking, a little bit of switching, uh, configuring devices, uh, getting a packet from point A to B, sort of those exercises uh, for 10 months, uh, which I would imagine just from my counterparts in the military, that's a fairly long training school. A lot of training schools, they might be one month to three months, something like 10 months is usually reserved for sort of more if you're going to something like special forces or some kind of advanced training like that, where you might go to school for a year to two years or even beyond that. Um, so yeah, 10 months to me was a very long time to be a student after high school, you know, again, my young mindset, even though that was an amazing time to be a student. Uh, from there, did my military service. Uh, most of, For the most part, it was sort of uh, a campus, uh, campus switching and routing, sort of you're assigned to a base, which is essentially like a campus. Uh, and then we just did uh, mostly operational, right? So uh, troubleshooting, break fix, day-to-day, -day, maybe uh, I'm changing this port to, you know, from a, a generic user switch board to a printer, right? So day-to-day -day stuff, right? Or we're, you know, turning up a new building, uh, let's configure some switches, get them installed, right? That was kind of the day-to-day -day there. I was fortunate enough, um, and I'm sure we'll get into it a bit deeper here in a moment. Inevitably, your military service, right? There's an endpoint, right? You won't be in the, I mean, if, if, if you're fortunate, you won't be in the service your whole life. I was only in for six years. Um, I did my, you know, did my service, very happy with it. But inevitably, it was my time to be, be a civilian again. Um, so from then, uh, just have a, a great partner that's been with me forever and kind of kind of kept pestering me like, hey, you have to get your resume done. You have to get some of your schooling done. And so to get ready, right, to transition from being a civilian to a military or from a military member to a civilian, uh, did all I needed to do, uh, sent in some resumes. I was, I was very fortunate to get hired at a great location, which, again, we'll probably go over here in a moment. Uh, and then got my first introduction into a real uh, uh civilian side network engineering role, oh, which was incredible. And from there, just went on to do projects, network automation, work with multiple vendors, uh, so on. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And again, we'll deep dive that uh, in a moment. Uh, did that for five years, incredible years, incredible company and coworkers. Um, yeah, very fortunate that that was my first role out of the service. Uh, once that was complete, uh, it's where I am now. I'm with Arista Networks. So yeah, that was my whole spiel. Julio Perez, solutions engineer with Arista Network. So yeah, <laughs> after five years there, uh, now I'm here. So I've been with Arista for a little bit over a year. Uh, I mean, same story, amazing people, amazing company, uh, very fortunate. So you've raised a lot of points. I've got a lot of questions going around in my head. So it's very curious that you talk about gaming being the place you've kind of you've kind of started and the reason why you got interested in Tinkered. We speak to a lot of people on the podcast that kind of started off in a in a similar vein. And I also like the fact that a lot of military people end up in IT or cyber because they have this kind of work ethic. And I'd love to dig a little bit in a second into whether that's you think work ethic comes from the military or you think you have a work ethic which leads you to the oh, military. Because um, that's I've never quite figured that out. Um, but I, I guess what was it about networking that kind of intrigued you like why why did and and i think to be honest let, let's st step back a bit a lot of people tinker sure. when they're younger i did john <laughs> did you did and there seems to be 
a lack of skill in that area at the moment in networking in that kind of hardware in understanding that and for me they're the fundamentals you need to understand how packets move around on your network and move around on the internet etc to be able to do really any it role or any security role but we don't tinker anymore or there doesn't appear to be the number of people that tinkered i used to build my own computers i would buy a all the bits and build them. I would take them apart, put them back together. And I'm sure John did that. In fact, I know John did that. Um, and that grew out of playing with Meccano and playing with Lego. Um, now we don't see that very often. And, and John, I guess I'm going to ask you this question. I, I think I think the tinkering has changed. I mean, in the past, it was all hardware based. So if you think back, you know, you built your own computer or um, if you want to go further back, you got out the soldering iron and put a circuit together. I, I remember doing that as a, as a little kid building a radio so I could listen to airplanes flying over and, and maybe catch their transmissions as they were in, landing at the airport. Um, but I think the tinkering's changed. So it's gone from hardware now to software. And I think that's where a lot of people are spending their time is, is in coding and, and building it in a different way. So um but I think, you know, if we kind of talk about Julio's career and, and what he's doing now, in a sense, he's kind of taken that hardware and now it's in yeah, software. Yeah, I think to answer your question, I think to it's really just about solving a problem. I mean, yes, we might call it like tinkering or, or building a Lego set, but initially you just you just have these pieces or these parts. And in the end, you just you get something from that, which in this case is more of you get a, a working network. But I think really it's just solving a problem whether it's getting two switches to talk to each other and then you have two pcs and they ping each other and it's like that moment in your brain that's an aha moment like wow i got something to work like that that's fascinating that's fascinating whether it's a software program where you're writing something in python and you're just learning but getting it to work or to print something it's like wow that's so cool and i think it just it just keeps growing it just keeps building you probably tackle more complex problems you know as you get uh, better or more knowledgeable yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, really, because we talk quite a lot about there being kind of not enough resources coming into networking and IT. And I'm not sure that's officially true, but I wonder if it's because the tinkering has shifted to software, because not that I'm saying anything is wrong with developing in software. I think it's good and we need it. But it seems to be the new thing people are doing and, and they're not being able to hire a standard networking person. So I'll, I'll go back to the question I kind of asked you and then went off on a tangent as I do. Um, what was it about networking? Did you just kind of fall into it or was there a specific thing that you wanted to do or was it just about fixing problems? I think I looked up other areas of IT, whether it was something like systems or systems administration or server administration or RF signals and I just something something just pulled me towards networking, you know, whether it was reading uh, the duties or what's involved and the technologies involved. I just gravitated towards networking. Uh, I don't really it, it's it's a great question to ask. And it's interesting. I don't have like a concrete like that was it. That was that moment. But it was more of what I felt would be interesting to me uh, for all of the options that were available. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's. A lot of people started their careers in networking. You did, John. I kind of did. Julio, you did. Um, I wonder now that people aren't starting their careers there, where their careers are going to go. Um, okay, so let's pivot a little bit back. You came out of the military, um, as a lot of people in the US do. It's not so common maybe over here in the UK, but it's quite common in the US. 
Is there any advice you can offer people that are taking that transition from being in the military to taking on their first kind of role outside? Because I know it's particularly difficult for some people to, to make that transition. What advice would you offer to people? Sure. There's really folks in two camps when they're transitioning from the military to civilian world. You either in the military did a role that was already sort of IT based. So you kind of have a little bit of background knowledge or you did a role that has nothing to do with IT, right? Maybe you you built bombs, maybe you were a administration role, uh, nothing to do with IT, right? So in those two versions, the path is a little bit different, but either way, some of the things I'll mention are, are very, very general, right? For one, if you have an inkling that you do wanna do something in IT when you get out, I would say start early. Gotta hit the books, gotta go to school, whether you're going to college or university while you're in the service, because that is possible, right? We have programs uh, and a lot of night classes that you can take advantage of to sort of work towards that goal. Uh, something I discovered way too late in my career, like it's probably, probably everyone thinks about this. I could have started earlier was something like networking certifications, right? Once I was a civilian, I really hit the books hard to attain network certifications. Uh, it's something almost in the world I was living in in the military that really wasn't advertised, at least not to me, right? In the communities I was with, uh, that wasn't really the focus. Um, so I think if I had started that earlier, I don't think about it much, but it would be interesting to see like, oh, cool, what else could I have done in that space? Um, that would be one start early, whether it's in university or uh, in IT certifications, right? Uh, and that that could be, I mean, that, that's just a whole another gambit of just which one to get, uh, which vendor, uh, just any and all, whatever suits you, not any knowledge is good knowledge. Uh, go ahead and just do it, right? So that's one. Now, once you have all of this training and education and you're about that time where, okay, I think I'm ready, something that also happens that I noticed when I was uh, moving on was that a lot of people have been in the service anywhere from six or four, six, 20 years. Well, that's four to 20 years that they've never written a resume. They never had to write a resume. But you, uh, you know, unless something, um, you know, happens uh, you know, globally, like you're not losing your job in the military. So that's not something, or obviously you don't do something personally that affects your service in the military. That's not something you worry about. So one thing would be, write a resume, give it to someone, maybe someone not in the service, right? Maybe one of some of your friends that are having their own careers in the, in the civilian side, have them look at it. Maybe use a, a resume service to just review your resume. Um, that's one. And the other one would be same thing with resumes. You also haven't really had to interview for any role in all of those years. So practice interviewing whether it's going online and reading interview questions. I think there's sites like Glassdoor where not only folks can post salaries, but also I went for this role and was asked these types of questions. Well, just go through the questions. Be like, well, can I answer that? This is the role I want. Do I know this knowledge? Do I think I know this knowledge, but I really don't. Uh, that would be huge. And then the last one, which I kind of, kind of uh, uh, poked at is the other piece that folks I think always forget about is salary negotiations. That is huge. I think, uh, you know, more people should negotiate salary and especially come again, coming from the military, you don't really, your, 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 your salary is sort of decided for you, depending on your rank, there's no negotiation there. 
So I would imagine naturally when you're going to the civilian side, you're just, well, this is the offer sheet I got. So that is what it is. And I'll just sign it and I'm good to go. When realistically, you should just research salary negotiations, be respectful. Don't don't go, you know, wild and, you know, someone offers you whatever number and you double it like well that's a, that's a little much there you can maybe do, do, do some late work do some studying and uh ask for something reasonable i i think um, that's very that's valid I, I mean <laughs> so so i mean i wish salaries were a bit more kind of obvious when you applied for a job i think there's too much smoke in mirrors but that's a whole different debate but i think the advice you said about sure. interview and practice <laughs> i had somebody approach me the other day at an event and say like what advice do you give me on interviewing? And I said, the honest advice is interview for jobs. There's no better practice than actually going interview for jobs. However, you will get knocked 100%. back quite a lot. There's a good chance, unless you're very, very lucky and you get your first ever job, you are likely to get quite a lot of no's as you become better. But treat it as practice. Go away, write down what you could have done better, try and get feedback from the people that have said no, which is really, really hard. Um, a lot of them don't do that, but try your best to get feedback. And don't think that that no means everything. It means that you are going to get better and better and better. And it's actually a closer step to a yes. Um, I'm going to pivot slightly and, and kind of ask John a question here. So I believe, John, you hired Julio when he came out of military, right? So, yeah, yeah, he, he, would, he yeah, he joined our team. The question I'm going to ask you is, what was it about Julio that made you hire him? Because that I think would be good advice for people in his position. What what was it that you liked as a hiring manager that made you hire him, or not made you, but what was the reason behind that? What was it about him that appealed? And I'm sorry to drop you right on. Wow, dude. Um, Really, I think it's showing up in this podcast. I mean, we've got somebody like Julio who's very curious, um, and he's also got a, a strong drive in him. So when we interviewed him originally, um, we could see that. We could see the potential there uh, that you know he could be on our team, be successful. And um, the odd thing was is that the story behind it is we had a network engineer that left us. He was a kind of a mid-level engineer. And when I looked at the team, I was like, shoot, we don't really have a lot of entry-level folks. So um, the deal I brokered with our CIO was like, I'm going to trade this uh, this top-level position in for two entry-level positions. And at the time, um, we only had approval for one of those hires. The second one was still coming. And so when we interviewed Julio, we were also interviewing another person. Uh, her name was Amanda. And um, we were trying to decide who to hire first. And um, fortunately, around the same time that we got approval to hire Amanda, we also got approval to hire that second person, and that was Julio. Um, and both of those hires were based on just looking at the person, their drive, um, who they were, how they answered the questions. You could see that they there was a lot of thought process there. And as well, um, one of the things we instilled within our team was this uh, culture of mentoring. So uh, the, the top level, senior level engineers uh, knew they had to work with our, our junior level engineers, our entry level engineers, and train them up on the technologies uh, that we were um, starting to, to, to work on. And we'll get into that a little bit. But um, I think that's one of the reasons it was successful, because 
Julio had all the talent there and just needed to be molded. And we had the right people to help him in his career and, and um, looking, you know, at, at Julio today and, and where he was, where he started, uh, that was hugely successful. He's, he's just taken off. And uh, I, I can't say enough about where Julio is today and, and uh, all the success he's had. So I think you've raised, and the reason I asked you the question is because I kind of know you well enough to know what your answer was going to be. But I think what's important is when we were hiring people back then, both myself and, and, and you, we had senior people, junior people, mid-sized people, and we could kind of throw them into the melting pot and everyone could help everyone else. And everyone was quite comfortable in doing that. I, I don't know about that. I mean, there are times when you bring somebody in uh, and they can be junior and the senior level people either ignore them um, or they feel like they're being threatened. So um, I think it comes down to leadership yeah. and instilling that culture of of mentoring in there and saying, you know, this was a good thing for you. So um, when you do have that outage, you can, you know, help this person be successful and um, you might, you might have an opportunity to sleep through the night. So um, I think it's, it, it, it's a leadership thing. Yeah. And I think you're right. And I mean, I, I tried to instill that as well in, in, in the team that I had, but I wonder if that's why there is an issue at the moment hiring cyber talent because there's there's such a small amount of cyber talent that there isn't a team that can help each other. Usually a, a, a company will have one, one or maybe two cyber people. That's starting to change. But they're trying to find that kind of unicorn because they need someone to do everything. Whereas we had the luxury maybe of having a bit more of a wider team where we could have, we had the ability to hire someone and help mold them and help train them. And if they made the odd mistake, it didn't matter. Whereas when you've only got one person on the team, that person needs to be amazing. Um, and I know we digress slightly. I have just one point that John mentioned with the role was a junior network engineering role. Now, mind you, I'm coming off of this as six years in the military doing sort of this role, but different, right? It's for the military, it's on the civilian side, different technologies, so on and so forth. But another tip, and this goes for civilian or military, is in some ways, you have to humble yourself. You can't have this thought of, like, I'm too good for this position. Like, there's nothing wrong with taking uh, a junior network engineering role and growing, right? I think a, a lot of folks, they want to sort of, in their minds, they might have a starting point where they think, you know, I should be here. And you might be turning down a lot of incredible roles that you can grow into and and blossom and learn. Uh, that's, yeah, my advice is don't, you know, don't be... Don't be shy about looking at, you know, like, for example, a junior network engineering role. I think that's good advice as well, because it's hard to break into the industry. And if you 100%. think you can break in three quarters of the way up the ladder, maybe you're aiming too high. Um, but again, John, over to you. Yeah. So, Julio, let's talk a little bit about... Um, networking and, and the changes that were going on at the time that you uh, joined our team back in the day. Um, so we we kind of progressed from really pushing packets uh, to moving to the, the scaling of the network. So software-defined networking, SD-WAN, and then automation. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that change and, and you know, how you saw it and uh, as well as how it's impacted your career? Yeah, so in the beginning of the network, 
at that position. And even in the military, it's very, very manual, very snowflake design. Uh, once we started this, once I started this role, and very early on, we were going down the path of like SDN, SD-WAN, automation. We're, we were, we're all on board, all on board. And for me, that was, everything was new, right? Well, what's a controller? We have a, a single point of management or of configuring the network. Like that was mind blowing for me. I'm like, that, that doesn't make any sense in my head. Uh, but in reality, right, that's about scaling the network, being consistent, um, introducing automation into that. And so from there early on, not only even in those you know, those technologies, but also just multi-vendor, right? A lot of roles, it's just, we're a, this vendor shop or that vendor shop. But I was thankful early on in the career, I got to touch a lot of different vendors, whether it's from, from firewalls, switching and routing, uh, branch deployments, right? A lot of different technologies, wireless. Um, so I was lucky. And then from there, introducing automation. So we want to uh, have a, a generic design, so to speak, for, uh, in this case, it was like a retail environment, and we want to automate it. So early on, uh, the whole team actually, see, this is how it works. It comes, it has to come from leadership. So from leadership, it was, let's automate the network. And at that moment in time, and even still, uh, Ansible was the tool of choice. Uh, it's sort of, in a, in a lot of spaces, it, it really dominates the field. Uh, so we went down the path of Ansible and automating our network configurations, automating our branch deployments, and that was, uh, that was definitely a turning point in my career from going from manual CLI changes and that mindset to, well, instead of deploying all of this manually, like I'm going to write a Jinju template or an Ansible playbook, or um, maybe use their, their, their platform, their, it used to be called Tower, now it's Ansible Automation Platform, or um, to, to really have these consistent deployments, right? We're not troubleshooting all of these uh, simple, well, Simple is relative, but these uh, common errors that might be introduced by a manual configuration, right? Sort of automating these processes, reducing uh, errors, and having more consistency. I think that was a huge change in my career. So, what are some of the areas? Um, so, if you're out there and you're you're looking to get into automation, um, what are some of the starting points? What are some of the things that you you know kind of need to know to uh, to move forward and down that path and be successful? Yeah, especially for network automation, I would say if you're getting started, uh, and I think some folks think that if you if you are going down this route, you have to be this expert and know all the ins and outs, and, and to just get something done and be successful, it could be very beginner, intermediate level. You don't have to go crazy advanced. But I started with Ansible. And then later down the road, picked up a little bit of Python. I would say if you're starting this journey, it would maybe benefit you more if you start with a programming language. Whether in Python seems to be the popular one just because it, it's easy to read, um, a lot of resources paid and free. Um, because once you know the intricacies of a programming language or loops and functions and if statements, all these things, these constructs are the same no matter what, what platform or framework you're going to use. So you'll be able to leverage that knowledge, even if it's, even if it's at a beginner level, to use other frameworks uh, even better or more efficiently. What are some of the, um, what are some of the newer uh, frameworks? So we, we talked a little bit about Ansible, 
uh, Python, but obviously, you know, technology moves sure, forward. Sure. I think, uh, and and you're you're you you seem to be kind of at the cutting edge of a lot of the automation. Yeah. What are what are some of the things you're seeing come even, forward? Even with even just sticking with Ansible, just a little bit a uh, little bit longer. And Ansible, they just introduced this thing called event driven uh, EDA, event driven automation, or event event driven Ansible. I have might get those two confused, but it's essentially something happens in the network. And I've either developed um, these, what they call rule books to react to this event. It could be either healing the network, creating a service now, take it right, doing actions for the operator instead of you having to perform the actions. For example, maybe we have an event and BGP is down. Okay, I see that event. Well, now I would commonly run these certain subset of commands, whether it's show me my neighbors, show me my interfaces connected to that neighbor, is it down, right? Performing these actions for us. So then you either either to remediate or to just gather information for me. So once that comes in, I have all this information. I could, you know, as a as a network engineer, I can look at this and figure out what the issue is. So that's one aspect I've seen uh, coming up. Another one is even for the most part, Python has even in network automation is really dominated, whether it's the libraries or the packages within Python, or there's even frameworks within Python like Nornir that are written specifically for network automation. Uh, but I think for more scale and speed, there is already little rumblings of network engineers picking up uh, the Go programming language. So I think that's that will become more and more popular in the future. Um, there's, you know, to toot our own horn, we have a framework ourselves uh, called Arista AVD. So again, I work for Arista Networks. Um, and that is more, that's a great representation of a framework to simplify network deployments. So it's whether it's it's having as little of input from the user to generate and build a network fabric, right? So if more and more frameworks come out like this, right, we can simplify the operator's life. Um, so those are those are just a few, right? So there's AVD, Go is going to be popular, Python's going to continue to rise. Uh, I think there's going to be some shifts in, in with the Ansible and EDA. I think that was really interesting to look at. Um, yeah. See, I, I, I was going to say, I see automation is firstly kind of reducing that human error because we are a whole human and obviously it speeds up deployments, but also it helps with the user experience. I mean, you were talking there about things like self-healing, I guess, like trying to, trying to fix a problem automatically and, or at least collecting enough information to make it easier. Sure. Um, how does kind of security have an effect on automation? I mean, we're talking a lot at the moment about things like zero trust. We talk about networks kind of being open and we've, we've designed them flat and, and pretty much give everyone access to everything. Is, is that having an effect on automation and networking in general? I think from my, just the, the, the little area that I sit in, it's more of, and this is more from like developer speak, it's more of like, Code analysis, is your code safe? What you're developing, is it tested? Uh, that's really where our, you know, our aspects of security or my security mindset comes in. Uh, another thing could be if we're developing something and it is for a security use case, well, what can we build in to simplify, you know, either, whether it's configuration or validations that that is right, right? Can this object one talk to object two? Is that valid, right? Is that in my test plan? Um, that's really where security comes in. in, in in my world because we definitely i mean obviously automation is great it speeds things up 
But equally, if somebody hacks that automation tool and they can speed up automating something not great, then there's a risk there as well, right? Yeah, there's even a a bigger discussion. There's even a bigger discussion of a lot of this tooling, for the most part, whether, you know, there's some vendor-specific stuff, but a lot of it is open source, right? So this whole thought of like, well, is this code safe that I'm going to use in my environment? so then, you know, just to advice for individuals is look out for code coverage. Is it maintained? Is it from a trusted body? Um, those are things to look out for, right? whether it's just one person. And one person can write an amazing framework. Mind you, it would be a lot of work. Um, but just, just check, you know, how is that person's reputation? Are they within the community? Do they communicate with everyone? Or is this sort of a, a, a random framework I found that I know nothing about, but I want to use it in my network? That might be something to look out for. So I had yeah, some so questions in terms of automation of and something we haven't talked about in that, that position. every time you open the up the internet very, or you, you go to a technical manual, site, AI pops to mind. Design. Um, uh, what are you seeing in terms of AI and automation? Are you starting to play with that in, on, we were going inside your path, labs like or SD, uh, is that still something that you see well, in the we're, future? Not personally. I have a few coworkers that have dabbled in it. And I think the initial opinion is that AI could be used as a tool to, to, to help us, right? Maybe I'm writing a, a program and there's some generic functions I need to write. Well, maybe I can just ask the AI to write those for me, right? I don't have to, to, to write them out in a thousand lines of code and you know, hopefully the AI can do that, right? Because those are, those are sort of, um, I don't want to call them like default functions, but they're sort of baked into what you need, right? Whether it's trusting the AI completely to take over a network, kill my network. I don't know if we're there yet. And then there's another conversation of, let's say we ask uh, just AI, whether it's something like ChatGPT or whatever it may be, you know, I want you to write me a config or do something to make these two nodes talk. Well, if that's wrong, and you as a network engineer don't know that it's wrong, well, now we have, now there's like a, a problem there. Uh, now we're trusting this AI who's not completely accurate, something's wrong, and now you've pushed that to the network. And you yourself didn't know that was wrong. So now how can you troubleshoot the network? So it's it's an interesting, we're in an interesting phase for sure in network, networks and network automation with the, the boom of AI. Um, but I think it's it's gonna need some time, especially for trust, uh, trusting that to take over. Um, there are you know some use cases, right? Maybe you can recognize patterns and either alert or sort of remediate. Um, that, that would make sense, but completely taking over a network, we're probably not at Skynet just yet. <laughs> I hope not. So it sounds it sounds like a lot of it, what it comes down to is is oh, knowing sure. your fundamentals. You've got to understand how packet gets from point A to point B, the routing protocols, all the things that go into a configuration as well as you know how it works on a Juniper device versus Cisco device versus Arista device and uh, so on and so forth. Um, one of the other things I kind of wanted to talk to you about is uh, so you, you've you've made the transition from the military to corporate, and then you move from corporate to the vendor side, which is something Jay and I have also done. Um, advice for people looking to make that change is is that a good change? Is it a is it a, is it a bad change? Um, and uh, what what is your what is your kind of your sure sure there? sure I'll, I'll I'll answer this, but I would love to hear both of y'all's feedback as well, just of, of your own experience. Okay, so for myself, very different, very different. 
for example, when you're working for an enterprise or even for the military, I mean, that is your customer, right? You're sort of, that is my team. Everyone here is, you know, we're all on the same team. I mean, we're here to help each other and get this to work. So it's, but then when you're on the vendor side, yes, you have your team, but now you have all these customers. So it's not used to be just one. No, now it could be hundreds or thousands or whatever it may be. I think from, it's interesting. I think depending on your role on the vendor side, some roles are more, internal, maybe more development, behind the scenes, very important. And some are more maybe public facing, whether it's something like a developer advocate or things like you do, John, right? You're out there in the public, you're talking to people or training them up on different, you know, different strategies or techniques for their, for their networks. And even for me, or either running something like a workshop uh, for, you know, in network automation, that's very different than what I did when I worked for an enterprise. You know, now I'm speaking in front of uh, customers. And that could be anything from 20 to 60 people in a room, which I might be, you know, I'm, I'm on this podcast and I'm talking, but for me, I mean, that's very, right. You kind of start to sweat a little, like that's a lot of people to be talking for I mean, for anyone, right. For anyone speaking to a crowd. Um, so, so they're on the public facing side, there's that aspect to it. But from the vendor side, I think you start to see there's so many pieces involved to do a thing. To, you know, whether it's to release a feature, develop something, a customer requests something. I mean, there's a huge pipeline just to, to get that in, right? Maybe from the customer side, it's more of, uh, this isn't working or this feature doesn't exist. You know, I want that. I'm like, but it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of people to get that to work. So you kind of see that on the vendor side, see that process. Um, but you also get to see everything. Well, you get to see the sneak peek of everything that's coming up, which is really fascinating. Uh, that's you know to be released. Um, but one thing I should know is that same thing on the enterprise space. Amazing individuals, amazing network engineers. But I feel like when you go to any vendor, any vendor, just I mean, you're working next to individuals that are writing RFCs or developing just these amazing frameworks or even that are working on the code base for your switching or routing platform. I think that is just, that just blows my mind that you can just message this individual that so fast. It's just incredible. Um, or if you want a question answered, I mean, you can talk to the very person that wrote the code that's on the box. Like that is just amazing. So that's a little bit different on the vendor side, right? Going. John from... doesn't like us, me saying this, but I was on the customer side a long time, right? 25 plus years. So I can't help no matter what situation I'm put in, the customer hat gets put on my head because that's the most familiar I am. That's the default setting. There are pros and cons of that. I think the role that myself and John do we are able to empathize with the customers sure. because that's what we've done for that period of time. And, and I don't believe the answer to every problem is going by more tech. Um, technology helps. I mean, I'm a nerd, I'm a geek. I know technology helps, but for me, there's more to it than that. There's the people, the culture, you have to budget, you've got resource issues. There's a lot of struggles that companies go through. And what I didn't realize until I was on the vendor side is not many people on the vendor side understand that. And that, that I don't mean that to sound bad. They're trying to sell product. 
They believe in their product, as do all of us on the vendor side. We believe in the product or we wouldn't be selling it. Um, but they don't necessarily know it's not all about just buying that product. They don't necessarily what goes on know what goes on behind that. And for me, seeing that and, a, and being able to be the interface between what's happening on the customer or prospect side and what's happening internally and kind of try and bridge that and explain to both sides of the party what's happening I think is great because that never happened so much 20 years ago or even 15 years ago and this kind of rise of the kind of tech evangelist or field CTO or whatever you want to name that role has really helped that and I think people are learning and John I'll hand to you I don't know what you think I, I certainly enjoy it on the vendor side I want to say that no I, I mean yeah I, I enjoy it on the vendor side and a lot of it comes down to uh, helping people on their journeys and uh, showing them the scars and the the bruises that I've uh, accumulated over the years and helping them to avoid those uh, pitfalls and 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 not have to deal with some of the the heartache that I had to deal with uh, on on my journey. And I think that's the the piece that for me is the most rewarding is when I can help somebody through a problem and um, lead them down to a better path so they don't, uh, they don't they don't accumulate this the scar tissue that I've had. Um, in terms of the the pros, uh, a lot of it comes down to I sleep at night. So <laughs> instead of that three a.m. call that I uh, that I was getting for so long uh, of an outage or um, on a holiday, uh, that that's that to me is 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 definitely in the pros. On the con side, um, it's it's not being able to. Uh, uh, work with amazing people like Julio on a regular basis, because uh, that that was for me was really what it was about. It was about the team, putting together the team, having the team execute and um, doing some really some really cool stuff. That's the piece I think that I, I miss the most is um, being being with those folks on the front lines and uh, spending my day there. It was it was such a joy. I, I think. I was going to say, for me, it goes right back to one of the first things we said on this podcast was it's about fixing problems. So I think we all do what we do because we enjoy fixing problems. So for me, I enjoyed fixing problems in the corporate world. But there's only so many problems you can fix. And don't get me wrong, you can never fix the more IT world changes. The reason I kind of pivoted to the vendor side was it gave me the ability to help more people fix more problems. And I mean, that may sound like a funny reason, but I know the pain people are going through, as does John, as do you. We know what they're living and breathing every day. And if I can just help one person per day, put a smile on their face and help them not be up until three o'clock in the morning, then I feel like I've done my bit, um, which sounds very odd, but that, those are the, that's the truth, right? Um, we're slightly running out of time. It's been great, as always, talking to a guest, and it's been great talking to you. So I'm going to ask you one fun question, and then I'll let John ask you one. Mine's always going to include food because I love it, and I always ask the same question. Um, what's been your best food experience? And it doesn't necessarily mean that the food was the best. Um, please don't mention pineapple on pizza because it will be the end of the podcast. Um but what's been your best food experience? And that could be the people you were with, the venue you were at, or anything like that, not necessarily the food. I have a little bit of recency bias. So my wife and I recently took a trip to, we went to Rome for the first time. 
amazing, amazing. I would recommend everyone visit Rome. It's just beautiful. There's a neighborhood in Rome, and I apologize if I'm butchering it for uh, it's a uh, Trastevere, I believe, is the name of the neighborhood. And it's a very old school neighborhood, a lot of history, a lot of great, great places to eat. Even even the the way the neighborhood looks is just just beautiful and there's eateries everywhere and it's, it's tight, very tight walkways. Um, but, but really any restaurant there, but I can't even tell you the restaurant's name just because we were just exploring, but just, uh, just that going on that walk, finding that neighborhood, that sitting down, that atmosphere, some house red wine, a little bit of carbonara. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's just a beautiful moment. That that is a fantastic area of Rome. I had the luxury of working in Rome quite a lot. My both of the last companies I worked for had sites there, um, and funnily enough, it, it yeah. I mean, the atmosphere in that area is amazing, and yes, it's quite touristy now, and it never used to be like sure. that. Um, so you you may pay a little bit more, but just being able to sit there and the buzz, and it's warm generally. You get to sit outside. Yep. There's great. Past a great pizza, great ice cream, a, a very good choice. So, so John, let's hand to you for one final question. Uh, you know where I'm going to go, Julio. Um, cider. So, what? Oh, uh, wow. What ciders is Julio drinking these days? I know that's a passion of yours. My favorite cider all time is out of a lot of them. They're going to be local, so I apologize. But uh, Alter Ego Cider, uh, incredible, incredible cider out of portland shilling anything from shilling uh so i gravitate towards you know john knows me but i gravitate towards a lot of more like sweeter cider uh there's dry ciders that are excellent for folks with that palate not for me i'm very much on the semi-sweet sweet scale so anything i recommend just assume it's gonna be on the sweet side uh but yeah those are those are some of my favorites and have you ever had English cider? I have. I had, um, I think, a pear cider. I went to the UK. I went to the UK, stopped by a, stopped by a pub. Um, I, I wish I remember the name, but anytime I went maybe, to a pub, maybe, I just... Sorry? Maybe it was called Magners? Probably. Maybe. Probably. And uh, yeah. any pub we went to, I just defaulted to cider. I didn't... Mentally, I don't have a bad cider experience uh, in the UK, so it was really good. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're, the area that I live in or or came from originally was famous for its cider. Um, so next time you're in the UK, let me know. Um, but I think that's a wrap. I really appreciate you coming on. It's great to speak to you as always. Um, John, anything you want to add before we wrap? No, man. Julio is always a pleasure to to chat with you. No, thank you. Thank you both. Thank you for having me on. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.